Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Be Holy by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we understand that you are always speaking and this morning we want to tune in. We want to, we want to tune the world out and we want to tune everything else out and we ask that we would hear you speaking to us. Lord, may our ears and our hearts be open this morning in your wonderful name. Amen. If you'd like to meet me back in the epistle of 1 Peter again, uh, we're going to continue our series in 1 Peter. Uh, for those who, who are perhaps new to 1 Peter or just here for today, um, what has brought us to the point, we're going to begin in verse 13, but we, we realise that up until now, uh, we looked at the first week, we looked at the transformation in the Apostle Peter. And what, a, what an amazing transformation he underwent from a, from a timid uh, often flighty kind of a guy, he turns out to be one of the pillars of the early church. We saw that in the first two verses of First Peter, there's some words there that quite often we tend to trip over, words like foreknowledge, uh, words like uh, sanctification and elect. And we had a look at what that means and how God deliberately chooses to, to chase after us. And he has uh, predestined a place for us, every one of us, to occupy and then, of course, last time we looked at uh, down to verse 13, where Peter explains both our identity and our position in Christ. What a, what a wonderful salvation it is that we have. He, he highlights that we all undergo various trials. That word various is very important, as we learned. We all undergo various trials, but there is deep purpose in suffering. At times, if I did a quick poll here this, this morning and said, is anybody been through some kinds of trials or affliction? I'm sure most hands would go up. And Paul says, you know what, to suffering Christians, and he's writing to Christians that are under increasing pressure, he says there's great purpose in everything that's happening. And the purpose is the tested genuineness of our faith. Now Paul, uh, sorry, Peter wants to continue, and there is a response that we each must make to this. He finishes off this section explaining this glorious salvation that the angels long to look into and, and that uh, the prophets had predicted from long ago. And now we come to our response because we get to the word therefore. And every time we get to the word therefore, we have to pause long enough to ask what it is there for. And let's, let's have a look at that this morning. Has anybody ever watched the show, uh, there's a porn broker show, what's that, Porn Stars? Yeah, I have to clarify that it's a porn broking show. It's about a shop in Las Vegas that has uh, stuff that they, people buy and sell. But it's interesting, I remember watching, and this happens quite a lot, they highlight these particular kind of items, but I remember this dude brings in this guitar, and I don't know much about guitars, but I know this. This guitar looked like it had been around the block. It was an old, beat-up piece of crap in my eyes and this guy brings it in and he's carrying it like it's a baby you know this is a precious guitar I can't even remember the brand but he brings it up to the counter and he gently lays it on the counter and, and he says to the guy he says this guitar he's got a photo to prove it and he says you know this guitar was played by Jimi Hendrix and I was struggling to know who even Jimi Hendrix was 
And then he says, see, look here, it was signed by Jimi Hendrix. And he says, he says this has been passed down. Uh, one member of my family brought it and it's been passed down to me and I want to sell this guitar. And the guy behind the counter says, he says, I've got to call somebody in to verify this. He said, because if this is right, if this is a guitar that Jimi Hendrix played and if that is his signature, he says, we're talking over $100,000. I still have a mark on my chin where I had to pick it up off the ground and think, what, how could this guitar possibly be worth $100,000? Of course, the flip side was he said, you know what, if it's not, we're talking a maximum of $2,000. Well, that's a big difference. I wouldn't even give you $2,000 for that guitar. <laughs> So they call somebody in who comes and says very quickly, you know what, it's a guitar similar to what Jimi Hendrix played, but that's not his signature. Ba-bow. The interesting thing was, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, that's just a beat-up ordinary guitar, but it had immense significance an immense value, and it was considered to be immensely special, not because of anything that laid in the guitar, but because of who had touched it. Today I want to have a look at holiness and when we speak about what it means to be holy and what holiness is, it could conjure up many things in our lives. But let me sum it up and paraphrase it for you. Uh, Holiness is really the mark of who it is that has touched you and whose signature it is perhaps that you bear. We'll have a look at more of it as we go along. Peter's got some stuff to say before we get to that. But as we start in verse 13, he says, Therefore... Preparing your minds for action. And if you read that in the original Greek, you still won't understand what Peter's talking about because in the original Greek it says, gird up the loins of your mind. In ancient times, everybody knew exactly what Peter was talking about because in the first century, everybody wore robes. And uh, the robes would be long and cumbersome. And if you wanted to quickly work or if you wanted to run, you would gird up your loins. You would gird up the cloth and you would, you would fold it neatly into your belt and you would be ready to run. And Peter's talking to Christians that are suffering. Peter's talking to Christians that are under increasing pressure. And he says the biggest response to this wonderful salvation is we need to be a are people who gird up the loins of our minds. The best way that we could possibly understand that today is the phrase perhaps, on your marks. You ever watched an Olympic event, a track event? You know, all the athletes come down and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're shaking their legs and everything's cool, you know. They're just, everything's fine until somebody says, on your marks. Something changes in these guys all of a sudden. You know, you can... You begin to see them sweat. The steroids are pouring out of the pores of their arms. And, oh, that's only in uh, China and Germany. No, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, these guys go from relaxed to intently focused simply because somebody says, on your marks. And what Peter is saying to these guys is, you guys need to get intently focused here. You need to pick up the slop of, of, of what you're thinking and your worldviews and stuff, which we've looked at, and you need to gird up the loins of your mind and you need to be ready for action. Preparing your mind for action. C.H. Spurgeon, I had to slip this one in early before you head back to Lagana. C.H. Spurgeon says, do not give way to the world. We are to gird up our loins and contend with the world. When Peter uses the word mind, he's not talking about trimming the physical. He's not talking about brain surgery. It's a waste of time for me. There's nothing to operate on. 
He is talking about what it is that we think through and over. This is about what it is that grabs our attention. What is it that grabs your focus? We'll look at that more as we go along. I want to continue because I really want to press home this point with what Peter says next. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And I love the way Paul does this because what's the opposite to being sober? It's, of course, being intoxicated. And we think that what we think and, and how it is and where our attention and focus is has no bearing on our lives. But who knows that if you go and drink a huge amount of alcohol, that's going to have an effect on your body. All because of the effect it has on your mind. And what Peter's saying to these guys is you guys need to be sober-minded. You need to be self-disciplined. It's a self-disciplined in the way that we think. It's self-disciplined in our attitudes. Our attitudes towards God, our attitudes towards each other. There is a self-disciplined approach. It's self-disciplined in worldview. The world, everybody actually has a worldview, do they not, Stu? Everybody has a worldview. Our lives are orientated and governed by the way that we see the world. And the world around us would love you to view it the same as they do. Be sober-minded, be disciplined in our attitudes, be disciplined in our thoughts. C.H. Spurgeon cuts to the heart when he says our thoughts are as speech before God and I wonder what it is we say sometimes. What is it that our thoughts would say to God about him from us? What is it perhaps that our thoughts would say about others towards God, let alone ourselves? And of course there is the last one, uh, we need to be self-disciplined in our doctrine. If you read the epistles, you will find there were two major threats to the early church. First one was suffering, persecution and affliction. The second one was false teaching. And in over 2,000 years, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We need to be self-disciplined about how we handle the Word of God. I'll give you some good news. There's a lot of churches, both in Brisbane and Australia where people handle the Word of God really, really well. It's great news. Praise God. But there are times when it is not handled very well. Turns out that most times you open this Bible and it's not going to say what you want it to say. And we need to be self-disciplined in how we approach Scripture. Let's read on and see what Peter has to say. Preparing your minds for action. It's like on your marks, guys. Being sober-minded, self-disciplined. He now says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope or set your hope in the grace or the favourable regard that will be brought to you at the appearing or the revelation of Christ. He uses that same word in in verse 7. Let's read verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation or at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on the grace. None of us here, if it's not for grace, none of us here will stand before Jesus. Not one. And every single one of us, when we do stand before Jesus, we will, we will give him glory, honour and praise for our salvation. Not one of us will stand before him and say, thank goodness I found you. Every one of us will stand before him and say, thank goodness you found me. 
set your hope at the appearing of Christ. If uh, C.S. Lewis says, those that have made the most impact in this world have lived their lives focused intently on the next. Uh, Peter is saying, get your eyes off what's happening here. Uh, anyone ever watched that, soldier, uh, that movie, We Were Soldiers? With Mel Gibson. Great movie, by the way. A great movie. And... I remember watching the scene in the heat of the battle and they've got uh, Mel Gibson and another guy in the middle of it. And these guys are like, everything's chaos is happening around them and they call in airstrikes. They lift their eyes above the immediate and what's going on here, which is greatly beneficial for them. And what Peter is saying to these guys, you know, everything that's happening here, everything that's happening in your life, get your eyes above that. Hebrews 11 tells us that the heroes of faith live their lives with their eyes somewhere else. Their focus was on Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the appearing of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What is What's Peter talking? There's a but coming, by the way, and we know that most buts in Scripture are good. Not all are, but most are good. But obedient children. You know, each and every one of us that do have children, most of us here have children, but uh, we raise children uh, our way, don't we? We kind of, you know, we discipline our children our way. We raise them according to our way. It's all generally the same. But for my four children, I have a certain particular way that I... It never works, by the way. I have a certain way that I would like them to act and behave. You are my children, so I would consider you to act a certain way. And we all have the same expectation as parents. You are my children, you will act a certain way. And what God is saying here is, as my children, you will behave a certain way. Peter's saying, as obedient children. As obedient children. Obedience equals not being conformed to the world. We are in a new family, we have a new identity, and we live according to this new identity. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And the word conform there means to fashion or shape like another. It speaks about the pattern of our lives. And I wonder who or what it is that we conform our lives to. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The the Christian life is the life lived, redirecting and of redirected passions. You spend five minutes with anybody and you'll begin to understand what they are passionate about. Let's talk about it in a... a in a kind of a hobby or, or interest kind of way. Some people play golf, some people play tennis, some people do... Uh, the really devout and spiritual people fish. <laughs> and play bingo, of course, Tom. <clears throat> I can't spell, so it's no good for me. <laughs> I can only read Greek. Now, <clears throat> if you spend more than 10 or 15 minutes with myself or my son, Ruben, you'll begin to understand that we're passionate about fishing. We will talk about fishing. We think about fishing. Somebody said to me the other day, do you know it's supposed to be 35 tomorrow? I said, listen, unless it's Monday, I don't know what the weather's doing. 
because I'm only worried about what the weather's doing on Monday. I'm only worried about the temperature on Monday because it's what I'm passionate about. And it orientates my focus. It orientates certain areas of my life. And if we redirect our passions, it reorientates our life. And the Christian life is reorientating our passions. If you're passionate about Christ, you would speak about him more. Remember when you were first married, Bill, and all you spoke about was Kate? Yes is the answer you're looking for, brother. (laughs) It's the same in our relationship with Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but Peter now offers a stark contrast. This is the life you used to live, but there's a but. Everyone's got a but. Not all of them we want to know about, but this one we do. But, says Peter, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Peter is now moving from what we are not to be, not to be consumed with the passions of our former ignorance, but be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Does it mean we go and find a dark cave somewhere, wear a ragged old cloth, cross our knees, hold our fingers and hum very politely? No, that's not what it means. If we look at what is holy, we're going to look at it more in a moment, but uh, to be holy is to be separate from the ordinary. You see, God is holy, holy. He is far above ordinary. And that's the first part that Peter points to. As he is holy, as God is holy, he is so far separate. Remember the Israelites, they come out of Egypt They've seen the great hand of God working as they walk through the sea. They get out into the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai. God comes down on the mountain and there's thunder and and lightning. And they say, Moses, you go on up there, son. We'll stay here. What about Isaiah, the prophet? He says, "In in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What's Isaiah's reaction? I'm a man of unclean lips. Can I tell you, the closer you get to God, the more your sin will become evident. It just comes to the surface. Have a look at Peter in the boat. All the disciples are in the boat, but Peter's the one that gets it. They haul in the big, huge load of fish, and Peter, all of a sudden, Peter gets it. You're not ordinary, Jesus. You're far above ordinary. And he says, away from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. John, the apostle, spends three and a half years with Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, he says, I heard a voice behind me and I turned to look because he didn't recognize the voice. And when he, when he saw the appearance of Christ, it was that glorious. He, he was struggling and clambering for English words. He said that his hair was like wool. He said that his eyes were like burning flames. That's all the English that he had. And then he says, I fell down as a dead man. We read the Gospels and we paint a picture of Christ with long blonde hair and blue eyes. That's not the picture that we will see when we see him in all his glory. He is holy. Peter goes on to say that as he is holy, we also should be holy. And holiness is not about what we do not do anymore. It's about who we live close to. 
all the bad things in our lives, all the sin, all that stuff, it, it, it naturally, organically, it just falls away the closer we come to God. It's a natural result. Holiness and, and sanctification and consecration is always pointed as a positive journey towards. It's, it's the pursuit of God, as A.W. Tozer would say. And what we find is that the, the more we pursue God, we'll turn around, and the further we are away from who it was we used to be. It is separation from sin but it is the adamant pursuit of God. C.H. Spurgeon says, if you think you can walk in holiness without keeping up perpetual fellowship with Christ, you have made a great mistake. If you would be holy, you must live close to Jesus. What's a way to sum up Holiness, to be holy, means the adamant and diligent pursuit of God displayed in the fruit of a life with redirected passions. You cannot have the fullness of the presence of God as well as the fullness of sin. Here's how... How many parents here know that this is how to become an unpopular parent? You start talking about sin to your children. Here's how to become an unpopular pastor, home group teacher, whatever it is. Start talking about sin. Nobody wants to hear about sin anymore. But if we knew and could grasp the holiness of God, we'd understand that sin is a huge problem. Next week, we're going to look at the word ransomed and what it cost for Jesus to deal with that. Huge. I want to talk briefly. I want to digress briefly and talk about the temple. And I could preach for 12 months on the temple and the Old Testament imagery in the temple. But I want to touch on briefly. Uh, the, basically, I want to overarch the temple and bring it into the New Testament. The temple in the Old Testament, you, you might ask the question, Why? Uh, what, what's, what's the go with the temple? Why, what was it all about? The over, N.T. Wright says the overarching uh, theme of the temple is a place where both heaven and earth can meet. It was a place where people could meet with God. It was a place where you could worship God, yes, but it was a place where heaven and earth would meet. The temple was, in those days was nothing more than a building. Have you noticed that? Read about when Solomon builds the temple. It's just bricks and mortar. What makes the temple special is when God comes down. God inhabited the Old Testament temple when it was dedicated and consecrated. Not before. They lost count of the animals they sacrificed in the process. What we don't know, perhaps, is how often the temple did not even have God in it. We're going to get to how this applies to us in a moment. But if you read the book of Jeremiah, you will read, and if you spend five minutes at Lagana, you, and you don't know the word Jeremiah, there's something wrong. But uh, what we see in the book of Jeremiah is they were going about all the routines. Out on the steps, they're offering the sacrifices. The priests are all dressed the way they should be. They, they walk into the temple and everything's flowing how it should be. But when you peel back the curtain where God's supposed to be, it's full of idols. There's no God there. 
And, it, and it's, it's a warning that we should all take. God will not inhabit any place that he is not deeply honoured. The distance between the outer court in the temple and the most holy place was a distance that was only able to be overcome by a process of consecration. Sin was a big problem then. Sin is a big problem now. Here's something deeply profound that I still can't get my mind around. By the time we get to the New Testament and we get to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, uh, Paul is going to say to the Corinthians, who we're talking a church that used to not swing from the rafters, these guys used to sleep there, and he says to them, now the temple is you. The place where God has ordained that heaven and earth will meet is you. The place where God lives and God dwells is inside of each one of us. Nothing's changed. He will not reside where he is not honoured. He will absolutely challenge the idols that lay in our hearts. You can't have God and idols behind the curtain. You can't do both. The temple today is a place right here where God lives. He wants to make his home here. And yes, there is still a process of consecration. Less sin equals more of God. I was never good at maths, but I can work that one out. But if you reverse it, it makes more sense. More of God equals less sin. Peter's got more he'd like to say. You also be holy in all your conduct. And this hit me square between the eyes. Because now I've got to be holy when I'm at the office. Now I have to be holy when I'm at home. And it's about where is my focus the whole time? Where is my attention? Who is it that I am passionate about? What is it that I am passionate about? It changes all of your conduct. Be holy or separate in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, comes back to the identity that Peter points to in the very first verses, where he says, you guys are elect exiles, or chosen aliens. Some of us look more like aliens than others. But he says, you're chosen aliens. Aliens stand out. Foreign people stand out. If somebody comes here with a different accent and a, and a different culture, they stand out. You also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, that's taken from Leviticus 11, verse 14. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now we're going to get to the motivation of holiness. Now we're going to get what is the motivation for us to pursue God? What is the motivation for us to, to, to come closer to God? And first part is, he says, if you call on God as Father, and that is the Christian life. The Christian life is calling on God with a continual and habitual call on God for help. Just as our children are fully reliant on us as their parents, and I remind mine of that, So we should live our lives completely in reliance on our Father. 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And this is a judgment that <clears throat> Peter points to, it points to a present participle in the Greek, which means it begins now. It's kind of God over, overlooking everything that happens now, but there is a culmination. Uh, Paul would write in terms of the judgment seat of Christ. Has anybody heard of the judgment seat of Christ? Uh, well, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, what does that mean? Uh, Paul was athletic in his background. And the judgment seat in athletics is one who would stand up on a podium and view every contestant in the race and make sure that they participated according to the rules and made sure that everything went according to how it was supposed to, but they were also the ones that handed out reward. And so Paul says there's a time when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And your race that you're running now, he's looking at the whole lot. And he's the one that's got the rewards in his hand. That's a sermon for another two years of time. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear. I want to bring this to a close now as we come down to the end. It says, <clears throat> conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which is now. The application is right here and right now. And what does Peter mean by conduct yourselves with fear? Does this mean that we cringe and we hide away from God? That's not the fear that he's talking about. The fear that Peter is talking about is a deep reverence and awe and respect for God. For those that are following through the rock reflections, you will understand that Proverbs talks a lot about the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Friendship is reserved for those who fear God. Friendship with God is reserved for those who fear God. So what does it mean to fear God? What does that look like in our lives? I'm going to give us a, a, a fleshly example in a moment from Scripture, but uh, I want to come back to the wonderful analogy that Tim Keller uses. And I can't get past this analogy. Tim Keller says, uh, it's not a, being afraid of God doing something to us, but it is a reverence for him. So uh, we might be afraid of somebody harming us, but imagine for a moment I came to you and we were 16 flights of stairs up, no elevator, and I handed you a rare Chinese vase from some dynasty that I can't even mention. It's, and, I, and I give you this vase and say, I need you to go down to the lobby at the base floor and hand it to somebody that's standing there waiting. And I tell you to be careful because this vase is priceless. Can't be replaced. Who knows that you would take every step very cautiously and very carefully. Not because you're afraid that vase will hurt you, but because you're afraid you might hurt the vase. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. Every step of our life taken very cautiously and with deep respect because we don't want to offend God. Who knows that if, same scenario, 16 flights up, I toss you an old clay pot and say, run that down to the bottom for you. Who knows it? You'll sling it over your shoulder and you'll jump three stairs every time you're going down because you don't have any consideration for what it is. The fear of the Lord is the value that we personally place upon him. And can I tell you, the more you fear God, the less you sin. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare. The closer you come to God, the more you, you understand his presence, the, the closer you live with him, you, you wouldn't dare. Peter encourages each and every one of us to be holy. I want to give you an example now as I ask the worship team if they come up ready for the last song.
I want to give you the example of Joseph from Genesis. I love the story of Joseph. What's, what's the first lesson we learn about Joseph? If God gives you a dream, keep it to yourself for a little while. The second thing we learn is that, you know what, sometimes bad things happen to good people, which is why we spend a fair bit of time in Ecclesiastes. But the story of Joseph, of course, we know he has a dream, he shares it with his brothers, they become jealous, they want to get rid of him, the the opportunity comes, and it was only because of Reuben that they didn't kill him. And I remind Reuben of that when it comes to his brothers. But they... They chucked him into a hole and he sold into slavery. I mean, are things getting any worse here? I mean, he's a guy that loves God. He's he's in covenant with God. Him and his whole family are in covenant with God. He's put into a hole. He's away from his family. He's been forsaken by his brothers. Now he's in Egypt, a place that he's, he's never been to before. He's a slave in Egypt. There's no hope that he will ever be released from this slavery and he's working for a hard master. And then or, on top of that, Potiphar goes away. And Potiphar's wife, who history would tell us would have the reputation of being reasonably good looking. Potiphar's wife decides that she will attempt to seduce Joseph. Most people might look at that and go, well, you've earned it, son. Of course, you would be excused for doing whatever it is that you want to do. But I love the response of Joseph. You know, Joseph, here's what Joseph didn't say. Joseph did not say to her, how could I do this thing and offend Potiphar? No, that's not what he said. Joseph didn't say, I couldn't possibly do that in case my father ever found out. That's not what he said. Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how could I possibly consider doing this thing and sin against God? Here's a guy that's been somewhat had a rough time of it. He's wondering, probably wondering where God is in all of this. But he says, you know what? I value God so much, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare. Fast forward to the end and we see God's purposes, don't we? If it wasn't for Joseph becoming the Prime Minister of Egypt, uh, then Israel would have starved in a famine that struck the land. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had Israel. And Joseph says to his brothers, after their dad had died and they're wondering whether... Joseph is going to now take revenge on them. He says, you know what? He says, all of this you meant for evil against me, but God meant it for good. He never lost sight of God in all that happened to him. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. When nobody's watching, when nobody else is going to find out, what is our response? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that each and every one of us in this room bear both your, your mark and your signature. Next week we will look at how much value you place on each and every one of us that you would send your son. I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that you desire to live inside of us and to make us your home. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would live in the fear, in the reverential respect for the creator of the universe and that our lives would reflect that fear and that reverence. 
In your wonderful name I pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.